Welcome to the J3 University Podcast. Each week, we bridge the gap between science and in-the-trench experience for physique enhancement. I'm your host, John Jewett. Let class begin. Welcome everyone back to J3 University with me as always is co-host Luke Miller. Luke, how's it going? Pretty good, man. Just, just prepping my life away. And like we all love is hypertrophy. And I have the man here with us today of hypertrophy, Joe Bennett, uh, owner of the hypertrophy coach website, just hypertrophy named everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. I just claimed it. You don't actually have to know what you're talking about. As long as I just claim the name, then there's that. So, yeah. So this is the guy he's the hypertrophy guy. And you know, uh, if you don't know Joe, you know, you have bachelor's exercise science along with like multiple certifications. It's just a ramble of letters of, RTS, Bioprint, PICP, Matt. I mean, you, you name it, Joe has it. But what's more importantly is the rubber hits the road and he actually can apply it because he worked with thousands of clients by now of getting people results in the gym. So uh, all those letters and stuff are kind of meaningless if you don't have that other later piece to go with it. So um, anyway, Joe, welcome to our podcast. Um, pleasure to have glad you to, for taking the time. Yeah, thanks for, thanks for having me, man. I'm glad to be here. What's going on in the world of the hypertrophy coach? Uh, you know, nothing much. I always say it's, um, I'm, one, I'm living the dream. I got to always say that part first and foremost, uh, because basically I couldn't make it as a professional bodybuilder. And I, I think I realized that around my, my around 20 or so. Um, but the goal of being a professional bodybuilder was to get paid to be a bodybuilder. And I am doing that. So, I'm, you know, I made it there one way or another. I've made it to the top of the mountain, my goal. Uh, no, but I'm great, man. Um, honestly, life's good, you know, and I, uh, my life revolves mainly, honestly, around being a dad with some hypertrophy coaching stuck in the middle there. Um, but no complaints, man. Good stuff, man. Everything's, everything's going great. I think the scribbles on the whiteboard tell the whole dad thing. Yeah, no, well, that's actually the secrets of hypertrophy. <laughs> yeah. I, have, I have tears to my membership. This one's like 1200 bucks a month and I'll decrypt all this for you. But uh, yeah, that's uh, that's levels. That's for the or my OnlyFans or fans only or whatever it is for hypertrophy. I have that. Do you are you still like building onto your home gym or is that a pretty like built out done deal? You have everything you want in it. Yeah, that's pretty sad. I mean, so honestly, that was first and foremost built for my wife um, because I've I've always liked to train my wife. She always enjoys it when I train her, and uh, obviously before kids, it was you know she'd come to wherever I was working at that point in time, and I train her. Then as soon as you have kids, things kind of change. And then honestly, realistically, a few years ago, we realized the only way she was going to train is if we had a, a garage gym. And so I really, I built that for her. And that's where she, the only place she trains as of right now. And then um, obviously with everything that's uh, occurred in the world this past year, it came in handy because there were a couple of weeks when I didn't really know what was going on. And so I trained there a little bit. And I, I want to have some equipment in there too. So if I just feel like training in there, I can. Um, but for right now, it's a done deal. But if I... um we're looking to eventually, you know, we're, I'm still relatively new to the Tampa area. We've been waiting a while before we buy anything, but if I buy something, you know, hopefully within the next year or so, I actually want to probably have a bigger gym um, on the property just because why not, you know, people collect cars and stuff and I'll, I'll have a gym in my, at my house. I might as well. Right. <laughs> yeah. I think all, all bodybuilding meatheads, we always want like some type of gym. I love the Florida area. Like I think the yeah. idea of, you know, being that close to the beach, but then, of course, I would want – I wouldn't want, like, a, a big mechanic garage. And then I would just yeah. go train at Joe's house, I guess. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> his, yeah, right. He yeah. was badass. 
yeah. or, or have like just go to a gym. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but uh, the idea of like, we were starting to get some equipment that were like, nah, we'll just go back to the gym now. Oh yeah. But uh, yeah, eventually you're like, you build out your dream house where you have like two different garages and yeah, beach or whatever you got, your own lake or something. Yeah, 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 something like that. Yeah, I mean, I'm kind of spoiled anyway. Like I live with the gym I train at now. I pretty much built out and it's like a full legit gym. And uh, it's literally like 60 seconds down the road from me. So where I'm at now, I don't really need something in my house anyway. Yeah. It's, another, it's another reason I'm living the dream and super spoiled, so... People now hate you, so now we'll continue with our conversation. Yes, carry on hating me. <laughs> yeah, well, with, uh, with hypertrophy and you being the man, that's what we want to dive into today. So we, we just want to first, like, just break into the conversation with just kind of train theory a little bit, um, you know, boiling down to what are those, those big rocks on physique progress? People come to you, and, and mm -hmm. what do you really the main points that you're having to pull out to, to get them to continue progressing forward yeah um you know i mean it's i mean it's such a big thing now and it's it's so funny to think about my perspective on you know training for myself from first taking clients to training a lot of normal people you know to how now kind of working more you know kind of exclusively with like the elite or higher level higher level in the bodybuilding world um, you know, and so I honestly, I always try and like take a step back with everybody and, and really, I think it's a big thing that everybody skips, whatever level you're at in the training world and not the answer most people would anticipate, but, you know, kind of talking bigger picture stuff, like why, why are you training? What are your training goals? Even at the high level? Um, because again, it's like some of us just get on autopilot. Um, and there's obviously something, whether you look at it, something about bodybuilding that appeals to us or there's something wrong in bodybuilders brains that makes bodybuilding appeal to us where it's like, we just kind of get in and we plug in and we do our robot stuff and you can, and some of it's great, obviously, but some of it is, I think people just robot along and just kind of end up at a point and, and maybe don't spend enough time thinking about why they're doing what they're doing. So this you know, is so kind I was, of like your uh, <clears throat> beginning of you like, Hey, let's take a step back and look at the needs analysis. Right. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I, and I honestly think it stems from, you know, I always say that's the number one job of any coach or any trainer is, is manage expectations. And, um, you know, so I you always want to know where someone's coming from, you know, obviously what is their end goal? So obviously what do they want different at some point than where they're at now, you know, and then kind of obviously seeing where their actions are at now and then just kind of reconciling the two, because it's not always just on paper. Like I look at like, Oh, well, this exercise is dumb. Let's do this one. And here's why this one's smarter. Um, you know, I mean, all the things that make people, people, um, is very important and, and especially at the very, you know, beginner level. So if I'm working with Mrs. Jones for weight loss, you know, then I honestly think there's, there's a hundred different, I could literally, if I don't think I could ever stop writing different programs that could achieve a good result, you know, if she's adhered to a diet and just kind of moving some big stuff while they're in the gym, you know, and obviously as you get more and more specific with your goals, you want to do well on the Olympia stage. You know, I think we start to, you'll see a lot of commonality between a lot of good coaches, but you also, I think, I think a lot of my stuff stems from the notion of efficiency. How can we be as efficient as possible with what we're doing? And so even at the high level, though, I think that's, I think if there's one big takeaway, you know, if we start to talk more about, you know, Terrence and people that I work with is like when we're actually in the gym, it's not like we're not getting fucking protractors out and, you know, getting all into, I mean, it's like the normal conversations you would have. I've worked with Terrence honestly for so long now, you know, we did a lot of stuff right when we kind of started working together it was like an overhaul. But now, I mean, it's very, you know, there's certain things where it's like we could have 10 different movements we want to do to accomplish a goal. So it's conversations with him. How is the feeling? What does he want to do? You know, we run something into the ground. We switch it. I think the big thing is that it's everyone's just kind of unemotional about it for the most part, where it's like some stuff is like I think people would be surprised how quickly 
we can switch from one thing to the other. If I was like on paper, I'd rather have you doing it this way, but then he performs it another way. I'm like, fuck, let's just go with that. But at the same time, every once in a while, I'll do something fucking super nerd, but it like registers the same in my brain. Like there's a joke I've modified a, 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 a preacher curl in my gym that I'm actually yet to take a picture of because it's literally just such a fucking nerd modification that everyone's, I literally, I mean, I, not that I actually care, but I knew as soon as I post the picture of this and I have just want to say, does anybody know what's going on here? People are just going to fucking lose their mind and you reinvent the wheel and overcomplicating stuff. But for me, it's just, uh, it looks like a complicated thing, but the reality is if I, as soon as I have like Terrence gets all this stuff at this point in time anyway, but if I have him get on it and I say, Hey, try this, does this feel better for what I was trying to fix? He's like, oh, yeah, it feels great. And that's the same thing any meathead would. Some meathead will look at this and be like, oh, it's so complicated. I'm like, okay, cool story from behind your thumbs. If they ever came to the gym, they'd be like, oh, this is the best curl I've ever used in my life. They wouldn't know why. But so anyway, all that rambling aside, um, you know, I, I think um, when I have somebody come in, it's just so different all across the board uh, as far as what we're trying to look at, what we're trying to approach. And, and the way I've done things now more than anything else is I always like to start with where people are at and what they're already doing. Um, and even before I try and change anything from, from volume to, you know, exercise prescription or anything like that, I'm like, all right, well, let's see what you're doing. Let's just start to take you through that. And let's just talk through it as we're going. So very typically I might have somebody just go through, if they say, Hey, you know, the normal thing would be like, what's your priority body part? Okay. My priority body parts legs. Okay. Well, what's a typical leg day look like? And let's, let's get after it. And basically as we're going through that, you know, I'll find stuff. I'll find either is one, is it just something that we can keep and we just need to improve the way that they're doing it? Is it something where as we're going through something they're telling me all the things that reasons why this exercise actually isn't a good fit for them. And they basically with enough questions, they're going to admit to themselves like, Oh shit, I didn't think about that. I didn't think about that until it's like, okay, well maybe why we'll try this different thing in the future or we'll modify this or whatever it is. And um, you know, so it's, again, it's at this point in time, it's honestly a very different thing from person to person. Um, and I guess obviously the same thing every single trainer should do to a certain degree is I just kind of take it take it as that stuff comes, you know, what do they show me and what do we want to adjust? Um, and then, you know, the big thing obviously is it really comes down to, you know, the way people are doing things. Cause even if somebody comes to me with an exercise, that's again, on paper, not great for whatever reason, if they love it, then I'm like, all right, well, let's just see how we can get the most out of it. Stuff like that. So I always just think first and foremost, you know, execution, you know, how are we doing the things that we're doing? And then depending on where the person is with that, you know, we can start looking at other, other variables pretty quick, even within the same session. Or for some people I've had, it's literally weeks before we even start to like talk about anything else as far as how many sets should we do? How many reps should we do? How far should I take this to failure? Like if I have somebody that's like, I'll joke, I've had some relatively elite people that like perform an exercise, like, like a newborn baby gazelle, like walking for the first time. And I was like, well, what the hell is the point of like, not that people ride gazelles, but we're going to put a rider on your back. I should use the horse analogy, newborn baby horse walking. We're not going to put a horse or a rider on their back right away or another horse on their back. That'd be weird too. Uh, but so it's like, you know, let's fix that first. Let's take a look at that. Let's clean that up. Cause why would any other variable matter? Um, you know, until we address that first. So, I mean, I guess that's some of the ramblings of what I, I think about when somebody comes in for the first time and it, and honestly it's just so different from person to person at this point, I don't even really think like I have much of a, of a template, you know, as far as like, what's, what's the first session look like? What am I thinking about? What am I trying to accomplish? You know, and it's, it's the cool thing too. I mean, the thing I love about about bodybuilders. And like you said, you know, regardless of me being a wildly mediocre bodybuilder, I, I know. I, the body, I said it. Yeah. <laughs> that's, said that's my, yeah, yeah, I said, I'll, I'll be the first to say it. And, um, 
I mean, I dominated my household. So every night when I pose down for my wife, I fucking crush it. Uh, but it's on stages against other bodybuilders, you know, just, just okay. But the, but the thing is, I can honestly say, anyone that knows me, like I've been, I've been as into bodybuilding as you can possibly be since I was 15 from an action standpoint. So that's the thing. When I get somebody that comes into me that might be a higher level guy or whatever, I mean, I, I can relate. And so it's like, honestly, that's half of it. Why I just like to, you know, pick people's brains, see where they're at, you know, get them talking. And, um, you know, and then we just kind of take it from there, you know? Yeah. And I think it's, you have people going in all types of different camps, right? Like you want the person that comes to you and that gets like the template program, right? What is the Joe program? Yeah. I don't want to do that. Or they want this completely new change. And, and that's the expectation almost. Mm-hmm. And you need to manage those expectations. Like, Hey, I want yeah. to come to you and get the John Jewett plan because what I'm doing is not working. And yeah. it's like, hey, well, 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 why isn't that working to begin with? And what do you need? <clears throat> I think yeah. the, that there is a disconnect there a lot of times I see of like between what you need to where you're trying to go and what you've been doing. Cause you just get stuck doing the same thing over and over. Yeah. And yeah. Even within like, I nerd out and I love reading research and all these stuff, but we'll, we'll even have these studies where they take a group of clients and they just throw them into the new, new training. Right. And they yeah. want results. Some guys don't get results. You're like, well, how, why did that happen? You know, yeah. it's like, Oh, we didn't look at what they were doing before they came into the study. And now yeah. that they're doing those things, we're seeing like, oh, okay, well, this yeah. now was a more optimal approach for them or it wasn't. So I think making that connection between, hey, don't just jump to the next training. It might not be best for you. It's yeah. like, look at what you're currently doing and how you can improve it. Why is that not taking you through that mm-hmm. process and, and, and your needs analysis, right, of, of what yeah. you're trying to do? Because mm-hmm. that's how I start with a lot of people. It's like, we're, let me see your physique. Let's see your stage picks. Let's see yeah. what level you're competing at. Where do you where do you need to glue some clay on? Why yeah. is your current program doing that? <clears throat> and it's exactly what you said. Like we can do all the right volume. We can make all the right ticks on yes, you're trained to failure or whichever, but if it's all really yeah. poor quality, um, for one, you're you're being very inefficient. Yeah. Get more out of less. Well, that's one, it's gonna save you time, gonna save you mm-hmm. probably injury risk. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think that's, that's a great starting point. And then you can address like, okay, you're doing quality work. Now you can do more of that quality work yeah. if needed. Right. It might not yeah. need to, to go there. Yeah. So yeah. when, when someone is coming in and we have these things like you're, we're, you know, they're going into the gym, is this work quality? Um, and you have these kind of more subjective things that you're, you're bringing up, right? Hey, Terrence, do you feel this? And I think yeah. that's uh that's that's almost becomes lost with a few of these people that get too nerdy with things, right? Like, yeah. like they're like, hey, my humerus needs to be at like the forty-five degree angle with the torso, and it finishes at like five degrees Celsius of you know whatever. It's like, dude, whoa, do you even feel it in your back? Yeah. Well, well, no. Oh well, who cares about all the vector angles? Yep. Like, it, it, do you feel it? Um, what are those other like? cues that you're trying oh, yeah. to a lot of people that yeah. hey hey people listen to this like i'm not growing let's let's give an example like what was what was terrence's big issue you're working with him for his arms or biceps was it or i mean probably the biggest thing with him yeah arms i'd probably say were his big thing i mean when he first started the arms mm-hmm. hamstrings were probably it and then um you know everything else is kind of like i mean almost all of his training you know could be a little bit more efficient i mean he, that's the thing about terrence which why he's great to work with is because like he doesn't he doesn't have an ego, you know? So it's one of those things like I yeah, joke, like he's, really he's, he's, yeah, he, he's always had a huge back. He's always had, you know, big quads, 
you know, so I joke that I'm like, oh, well, we started training. Like, he didn't have legs before. And like, I'll just take credit for everything like any good coach would. Uh, but no, so, I mean, he already had those great body parts. But that's the cool part about improving all of your training anywhere is, like, if we improve training anywhere, like, even those good body parts obviously will progress faster. Um, you know, so for Terrence, it was mainly arms. Um, but honestly, we t- took away a lot of stuff, like things we didn't really anticipate trying to get his chest and dealt so much bigger. And they just kind of responded really well, cleaning stuff up a little bit. Um, you know, so yeah, it's, it's a, it's a combination of those things where it's, you know, cause again, there's, there's two sides that the nerds do with everything. Like one, as a coach, I don't think it's completely bad to have a little bit of a framework as far as you do kind of position your people a little bit, right. Cause you know, there's going to be opportunities where if you see someone grossly out of position, you know, as far as just things are going to line up a certain way, like, all right, well, I'm going to put you in this position because this is where you're most likely to have these internal things that you should be looking for. And that is the beauty of bodybuilding. I mean, it's one of the things where it gets lost. It's people don't realize. And that's one of the things I love from, from RTS, which is one of my favorite certifications I've gone to. And Tom Purvis, who started it, is he started as a bodybuilder. And the interesting observation that he's made is bodybuilders before any, any other training population realize it's about an internal response, right? I mean, that's, people don't really give bodybuilders enough credit realizing that like they're the only population that thinks about what do I actually feel? Can I actually feel the trained muscle where everything else from a normal person, even to people that are performance-based, it's all about A to B. You kind of have this vague notion of, oh, I want this to line up with this, whatever, but nobody else thinks about that. It's just going in and just you know checking the box and doing all that kind of stuff. So that is the cool thing with bodybuilders is they have an idea of obviously what that feel is that they're looking for. You know, so it comes in and obviously there's a conversation about what they are feeling, what they aren't feeling. A lot of people I do start with that. If someone actually knows the feeling they're looking for, then we just have a conversation about, okay, well, what's your best body part? How well do you feel that? What's your worst body part? How well do you feel that? And sometimes if I have where there's, depending on the person, a little bit of a disconnect. I mean, that's the, the truth of human nature is people don't believe things that other people tell them. They only believe things they tell themselves. So it's normally I'll have it, an idea of like kind of almost these guided questions where it's again, even I'll have somebody that comes in that's maybe into it or not into it. I have no idea. And through enough questions, they'll realize the biggest difference between their best body part and worst body part often isn't performance. Like I've had people with, you know, shit chests that can bench four or five plates and, uh, and they'll realize like, Oh shit. Well, my good body part, I feel doing everything. They feel every single exercise If their backs, their good body part. They can be doing baby handle, big handle, wide handle, up handle, whatever. And every single thing goes to back. And so I do start with that notion of let's put yourself in the position where hopefully we can create that thing. And then from there, it's just a whole bunch of different cues that could be different for everybody. Right. Cause again, cueing's, you know, me giving an external something to try and again, have this internal response. So it's a whole bunch of back and forth of, okay, well, let's try this. Let's try this position. Let's start thinking about this when you can track, let's think about this when you finish or whatever it is. And I even like great stuff. I mean, I remember, when I was a kid reading Arnold's Encyclopedia of Modern Bodybuilding, I remember love reading when he would talk about visualization in there, like visualize your bicep as a mountain and doing all this kind of stuff. Like some of it's mildly cheesy, but some of it's like if something connects with somebody, there's no bad cue, right? And, um, you know, so all that kind of stuff, it, it really does kind of start with that. It starts with feel, it starts with execution. And then, um, you know, and that's the nice thing is I rarely have to balance that with bodybuilders, but I'll get nerds that do the other thing aside from just getting the protractors out and shit. I'll get nerds that they kind of, they look for the wrong feel, right? I'll have people where they just have everything. I always talk about this where there's a very specific feeling associated with different muscle lengths. Like if you just tell some random person off the street, like flex your bicep, no one in the history of humanity has ever taken their elbow completely extended and flexed their bicep. Everybody completely flexes their elbow and flexes their bicep. 
even though we've never taught someone how, hey, this is the way you flex your bicep, it's because the muscle's fully shortened there and you can feel the bicep really well there. A fully lengthened bicep certainly doesn't feel the same. Doesn't mean it's working any less. Doesn't mean it has any less force production, but there is a feel associated with that. And so the funny thing that I found is some nerds will just basically chase that hard, crampy, contraction-y type feeling. And that's the funny thing where you'll just see anecdotally, you look at someone's program and it might be the idea where it's like, well, I don't, you know, I don't do squats because I don't feel them as good as leg extensions. I don't do chest presses because I don't feel them as good as flies. And their whole program is made of movements that I wouldn't consider mass builders because they're just chasing this one very specific feel. So that's a weird topic too, where depending on the individual, I have to kind of explain people, okay, what type of feel are you looking for? Cause I get it. I mean, no, I don't think there's any bodybuilder in the world that's in the, sitting in the bottom of a PR set of squats that's like, oh, I feel this neat, clean, and pretty contraction type thing. No, like your whole body is ready to fucking die. Whereas if you go into a leg extension, yeah, it's very isolated. It's a very specific feeling. I've pretty much never had someone on a leg extension be like, I can't feel my quads. You know, so like there's um, all that stuff there too. Like that's, I mean, that's fun stuff for me because there's no, there's no textbook on that type of stuff, right? Like, like different types of feel. And even at the end of the day, you're still at best as a coach talking about all this external stuff and still just hoping for an internal So you don't really know what someone's feeling ever. You know, you're just trying to obviously base that, you know, on communication feedback and all that good stuff. Um, I think yeah, it's just it, like with all these variables, like you can put too much weight into chasing one thing and yeah. it leads you down a rabbit hole, right? Whether that yeah. be feel and people like only going for the feel and that leads you down to a, a path of inefficiency. Or yeah. if you get down the other way, of no feel. Hey, yeah. I'm squatting. My fucking quads are going to work either way. Yeah. And that leads you down to just moving weight arbitrarily. Like, like yeah. Space. So yeah. there's, there's a balance to strike between For all sure. those things. Um, yeah. How about, so we have like, well, obviously, so you're squatting, you're not going to have this feel, but there's yeah. definitely a way like, you know, when I get off a set of like, say hacks, like it, yeah. it's so demanding, right? Yeah. That I, I don't, I'm, I can only process a couple of thoughts like while Yeah. I'm, yeah. Mainly yep. like, hey, John, survive. Get the yeah, yeah. Whatever yep. it may be. But I get off the set. I'm sitting around like minute, two minute goes by. I'm like, holy shit, my quads are like swelling with blood. I, I feel this. Yeah. Okay, yep. this is probably a good exercise for quads. Yeah. Or I feel some type of form of fatigue or tightness forming there. It's like, mm -hmm. okay, yes, these are the type of yeah. cues that I'm looking for there. So you don't always have to have the feel while mm -hmm. you're doing it. But there yep. should be some occurrence along the way. Yeah. Yeah. And it's one of those things where it's some like, and some of it's like you said, it's like, it's like glaringly obvious and stuff like that's the whole balance. I'll have people where, you know, you take somebody on a, a legit set to failure on hacks on leg press on something where basically, you know, anything extending any of the joints extending can work a lot. And so I'll get people that get like worried at the end of the set. They're like, I started to feel my glutes a little, I started to feel my calves a little, is that bad? And I'm like, no, it means we fucking, your quads are done. We're just trying to find everything we possibly can. And honestly, like I'll joke with people on that. Like they literally will get like worried. They'll be like, oh, I was feeling this a little at the end. And I was like, well, if you start a set of hacks and your goal is quads and all you feel from rep one and all your warm-up sets is glutes and adductors, then to continue going and hoping we find some quads at some point in time is kind of idiotic. You know, so again, there's, there's this balance of like, you know, on an exercise, I think during warm-up sets at least, that's the best time to have practice and have rehearsal and utilize those aside from hopefully – getting the risk for injury and there should be some type of feel involved right like you said i mean it's like if then i'll have people where it's that is some of the bodybuilding stuff that people do. and i've seen bodybuilders where like i can just see it visually 
where I'm like, you're doing hex and this is just a great adductor exercise for you. And I can see from maybe the way they're doing it. And then I can see from their physique. And it's like, well, at some point in time, like you said, that we, they, we, the good and the bad about bodybuilders, we just get stuck in this groove where it's like, maybe it did fit at some point in time or we really didn't realize how much it didn't fit or it's because of doing one small thing wrong. It's just regressed over time. And so, yeah, there's a whole lot of stuff to look at in that is, yeah, there should be some feel at some point in time during your working sets in a movement like that, everything should be, you know, some form of, like you said, death. And again, focusing on not dying, like working sets shouldn't be neat and clean and pretty. And, um, but then when you're done, like the same thing you said, like that's obviously a sensation to look for is where do you have the most accumulation of shit? Like you said, where do you feel the most byproduct of contraction? Where do you have the most blood flow is obviously going to be a good indication of, yeah, my quads are pumped as hell and they hurt. Uh, and even though maybe I felt my glutes a little bit at the end, you know, it's not this giant ass pump and my quads are doing nothing. Yeah. So all that stuff is stuff that you have to just, you have to take into the equation. And, and even that you never really even have a specific, you know, cause there's that stuff's not black and re- black and white. Right. You know? So it's like, even when you have somebody where it's like, oh, I feel this a little bit here, a little bit there. It's like, is there this clear cut line where it's like, okay, well maybe this exercise isn't effective. Maybe we should do something else. Or maybe I should really focus on your form. I mean, sometimes when you're actually just trying to produce results, you just, you're kind of somewhere in the middle and just do what you can do until you decide maybe it's not the best fit or not the most efficient, you know? A lot of this comes down to like the argument between action versus sensation and, and one, one people chasing one versus the the action and then creating setups and when that action occurs will even mm-hmm. over time develop that sensation for the individual as mm-hmm. we begin to teach them to realize that that muscle group within the action that it's supposed to happen with whatever setup we've provided to allow that yeah. to happen so can you walk like for the viewers like an example of something that with like terrence or with one of your pro bodybuilders that what that session structure looked like when you were bringing it down to let's relearn the action of these, of these patterns for whatever body part you, you think would be best to describe this yeah. and then how that develops sensation over time within relearning that movement pattern of the action. Yeah. And I mean, honestly, I would say like bodybuilders are a different group of people because the learning curve most of the time is nowhere near, you know, as, as dramatic or doesn't really take nearly as long as like an average person. Like for an average person, you have your, again, your Mrs. Jones, your normal person that just wants to be fit, maybe have a little bit of muscle. Like it's, it's almost a complete waste of time, I think, to focus on sensation at any point in time. It's like, you know, you will just put them in the right positions. And the reality is like, if someone's doing a squat pattern, does it matter if we're biasing quads or biasing glutes or whatever? Like in the beginning, probably not. You know, once you lose 20% body fat, depending on the person, and then they decide, hey, I want some muscle here, you know, then we progress to that point. You know, most bodybuilders, it's as simple as, Again, I've, depending on who it is that I've got, depending on how much time I've got with them, I mean, I like to just always go through someone's split if I have the ideal time. It's like, let's work through every body part and you'll just find a whole host of things. So it's, it almost always works with, you know, um, kind of overdoing some of the simple, I mean, there's nothing super revolutionary, you know, again, with certain muscle groups, you know, obviously things that maybe go through a shoulder joint or even a hip joint where there's a lot of range of motion, a lot of muscles that can do similar jobs you know, I might work a lot on positioning, you know, and obviously you have the balance of what does it look like this muscle is doing as far as the joints concerned. And then also getting feedback from the joint itself, even though this, Hey, is this a good position? Well, it's a good position for my pec, but this is a better position for my shoulder, whatever, you know, so there's some positioning and things. A lot of it is probably the only time that I'll use tools like tempoing and pausing because some of that's just people don't, people don't realize even at the high level of people that are just, they're just dropping eccentrics. It's not like, again, it's nothing magical that I'm doing. That's again, the protractor type stuff. 
but getting people to lower the weight and me giving them like constant feedback, like saying simple stuff, like lower the pec. And I'll do things where maybe I have someone pause. Maybe sometimes I'll use manual resistances, just having them push into something, create that initial contraction coming from that muscle. Like that's where, again, it's honestly different from person to person. Um, but that's a typical thing with a bodybuilder is, is literally just kind of getting them to lots of times, slow things down, go into some different positions, you know, go into some of that stuff, especially where, again, if there's a thing I focus on is end ranges, you know? So it's again, focus on, can you actually feel what you're initiating a concentric with? Can you actually feel that you're lowering the centric with the train muscle pause on those transitions, you know, to make sure there's no bouncing, there's no momentum. Um, and then, like I said, it's a whole host of feedbacks from there. I mean, if there's again, I mean, credit where credit's due from RTS stuff is some of the best stuff. Again, is it's nice to have just a giant pile of cues in your trainer toolbox. And they've had some of the coolest ones where you just, just bring people's attention away from what a lot of people think about, even bodybuilders, like moving from here to here. And people are like, oh, you know, I think about that. But, you know, are you really thinking about, okay, well, where does this muscle exist? What are we actually moving? You know, this, all this stuff is extra stuff. So if I can give a specific cue that focuses on, something closer to that muscle origin and insertion, lots of times that really kind of gets some wake up calls for people. And so there's, like I said, there's a whole bunch of different stuff I'll use. Um, again, from stuff I'm trying to give them internally and I'll literally say, Hey, try this, try this. I'm like, did that help? No. Okay. Try this one. Did that help? Cool. Let's keep thinking about that. But like I said, even, and then some of it, like I said, even like tactile stuff as well too, whether I'm either giving them something to push into to change their thought process or even touching stuff that obviously they're training, obviously touching tissue has been shown to have an effect and not that you need a study to show that, but just something to help bring attention to obviously what the goal is. So, yeah, I mean, there's a whole host of different things. That's some of the stuff that I look at. Um, I would say some of the, the main things that a lot of people get. And, uh, and then, like I said, obviously we'll keep saying the same thing, but there's a lot of, a lot of nuance and then different from person to person. Right. I think like if you're trying to advance yourself as a bodybuilder, and you're going to like this other coach for this new approach. A lot of times you have to just also not be a lazy bodybuilder and realize that there's going to be some learning that you do need to do. Um, yeah. If you, Cause a lot of this, what you're generating is this internal stimulus. That's what you're after. So you, yeah. need, to, you need to have to, to be able to line up joints and like, say you can't afford Joe Bennett or <laughs> X, Y, Z coach. Like you're going to do this on your own. So like mm -hmm. basic study of like, muscle origin insertions where those fibers run then yep. what is the is, are your limbs moving through where those fibers align it, it's yeah it's, and i know that can get super complicated looking at you know joint angles and degrees and but it, it's really fairly simple we a lot of this is already intuitive but i think some yep. of the muscle groups we don't like see in the mirror are more yeah. that you, I, I at least I see challenges are like you don't yeah. see your back so someone's doing a row or a pull down and then it's harder to visualize like where those fibers are running and and, and what part are you training um yeah so like those are some of the areas that I'll see so simply aligning people correctly like you said gets mm -hmm. people using those muscle that muscle that you're trying to target more mm -hmm. efficiently um yep. and, and kind of like once you move past that there are some nuances probably and setups that can engage that more which i'd like to see your thoughts on which you know some of it is from someone's initial setup going into your session um, yeah. are we going to have them first do some type of uh, activation work with maybe yeah. it's, it's getting the muscle short with like a band to mm -hmm. kind of prime that is yeah. that not even something you do when you go right into like big compound movements yeah. Or is it like, Hey, no, we're going to pre-exhaust with a shortened state, like isolation exercise, then go to your compound movements. Yeah. And then to finally wrap that up, Joe. 
Yeah. What's what? What is what is optimal, right? Yeah. What, if, yeah. if we have like, hey, I feel everything, I execute everything perfect. What what is yep. an ideal setup? Is it compounds and isolations and activations yeah. there somewhere? Yeah. I mean, I think there's um, you know, if there's one thing, and I'm I'll, I'll use myself as an example, and so I'm not throwing anybody under the bus, but it's everybody. Um, is I mean, I think I I think doing some sort of intelligent prep with the joints involved and the main muscle groups involved that day is always a good idea. Um, and for no other reason than the fact that bodybuilders don't ever move their body outside of where they, they train them and outside of where maybe they hit poses pre-contest for a few weeks when they're tired and do a shitty job at it. And um, so if there's one huge area of opportunity that I honestly think it's, it's funny, I'm not, again, not going to say everybody, but again, talking about bodybuilders and, and some of the things that bodybuilders are great at, have great work ethic for, they do these things, they prep their meals, they do da, 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 da. But man, people are still lazy with doing stuff that they think is boring or tedious. And, um, and so some of the things that I think I, I don't always, so as far as specifics, as far as am I going to look at this muscle involved, you know, am I going to take it? Am I going to fully shorten it first? I'd say that's a pretty individual thing. And um, I would say lots of times, I will definitely default to that if someone can't feel a muscle, you know, so if I have somebody that's, again, they'll come self-admitted, they're a good presser, they're strong, but their chest is shit. Then I might do some stuff like that. It's like, let's just find your chest. And there, and there is a reason I gave that example of, okay, here's your bicep thing. I mean, you can make some sciencey arguments for it of the neurological complexity of that position, blah, blah, who, who cares? Um, you can feel muscles really much easier in the shortened position, right? If someone can't feel their pecs, as so I can't feel their quads. Again, I'm not going to take them to the bottom of the squat to start to try and find them. I'm going to fully shorten. I'm going to fully contract. I'm going to start to connect them with that. And again, this is nothing revolutionary. Like I joked that, um, you know, bodybuilders have been preaching some degree of posing, you know, pose before you train, pose during your training, pose whenever, and it improves the mind-muscle connection, which I think is 100% true. I think is a brilliant thing to do. If there's something that I do just a slight – I you know, I'm trying to remember if I made something remotely clever to call it, but it's just like more like strategic posing is some poses work good and some poses don't, where it's like, well, there's not really a pose, you know, where you're fully shortening, you know, your lat or whatever. There's not really a pose where you're quite completely fully shortening your pecs, you know, so it's okay. Well, that concept is really good. So that can be used for a training tool. I think for people that literally they're kind of at ground zero with execution. And um, so I might start with that and work backwards again, because if I have somebody that's a great fucking presser, and they literally don't feel their chest at all, then it's, yeah, there's not a whole lot of point to move on to, well, let's do some compound movements. We already know you can't do those, you know? So let's just find this pec existing in the joint, the main joint it influences, and let's start there and then kind of work backwards. But even for everybody else, I think, again, the way that I like to do most of my prep stuff now is just looking at the joints involved and taking it as an opportunity to move them through as much range as they have available. Uh, and I honestly think if every bodybuilder did that, their training would be better. They would mitigate risk for injury. They wouldn't turn into muscle bound people that can't move. Um, because again, I don't think it's, it's not, this sounds, it's two different things, but I don't think it's the training at all that makes people muscle bound. It's the fact that they don't, they don't move. They don't move anywhere else except for where they train. So for me on paper, I have a hard time arguing against before you train doing something. So again, just to, so people don't think this is completely abstract. If I'm doing an upper body thing, I might literally take my, my, depending on what I'm doing, but I might take my, my shoulder blade older stuff. I might take my shoulder blades through as much range of motion as they have available, which again, people, when I say that big abstract thing, like, Oh, it sounds complicated. It, it's not, it's relatively simple, but it's a little bit tedious and people don't like to do it. So what does your shoulder blade have available? I mean, it can elevate, it can depress, it can retract, it can protract. 
you know, basically if we put points there and we say, well, what is the extremes of that? It's, it's a big circle, you know? So literally it's as simple as before any upper body session, I'm trying to take my shoulder blades through as big a circles as they have available. And same as anything else, people get caught on the wrong stuff. Well, how many reps should I do? How many sets? Fuck, if you did it once, it's better than you're doing right now, right? <laughs> and so I might, I might do a few circles this way, might do a few circles that way, move on to the next joint. I might go from, you know, from proximal to distal or whatever. So then I might look at my GH joint. Well, what's your GH joint? Just where that's the, I always joke, it's where the arm bone sits in the shoulder, whatever the little song goes. But it's your humerus sitting in the side of your scapula. And what does that have available aside from all this stuff everywhere? It's got isolated rotation. So I might do some isolated internal external rotation. Then I might do a combination of a whole lot of stuff. So I might do some big circles, which is really a combination of GH joint and your scapula moving together. I might look at what do my elbows have? What do my wrists have? And just doing something where, again, because bodybuilders don't go those places, right? I mean, bodybuilders, for some reason, rarely, you know, rarely will they fully elevate and fully protract at the same time. You know, they might do some retraction pretty often. They don't explore the other spaces. And same for every single joint. And if there's a thing that I think causes dysfunction, which is a really tough thing to define, um, it's the inability to go places that you're supposed to be able to go, you know, with your joints under your own muscle control. Um, so on paper, the optimal thing I think is every single person should, if you do it over the course of your split, take all your joints to the full range of motion that they have, if for no other reason to preserve what you already have. Um, but then also I think it'll improve function. I think it'll improve training. And all that stuff is just, it's a strategic warm-up. I find if you do all those circles and all that bullshit before you grab a bar and put it in your hands, you need less reps with the bar in your hands. And I'm, that's always something I'm thinking of, even if warm-up sets, if I can cut your warm-up sets in half, as far as the actual volume of your warm-up sets, that's not going to matter to Mrs. Jones, but that matters to you. That matters to people that, again, are getting on the Olympia stage. And basically one way or another doing things that aren't great for, I want my body to function as well as possible when I'm 90 years old. And um, so my optimum would be people do some stuff like that, which takes, you know, three to five minutes before they put a bar in their hand and then just do their normal warm up stuff and go on and carry on as an added bonus. I don't do it all the time, but if depending on the day, if you want to take a muscle and fully shorten it, get a band or even just get your body weight, it's never a bad practice, right? I mean, that's the joke of what's, what's the point of a warm up is half of it's a neurological thing. You need to have some contractions before you can have maximum contraction. So the same thing, if I just do some of these, here's my pec warm up. I'm going to press my hands together, focusing on contracting my pec, five second isometrics. If I did a few sets of that, again, that would probably be something that would save me some sets of this. Um, you know, so ideal people move their joints before they train, get into your warm up sets, think a little bit more strategically when you're going through it. And then bonus stuff is sometimes fully shorten some stuff, get work on that mind muscle connection. If somebody really has a hard time with feeling a body part, you might do more of that. I think that can absolutely be a great case for what you said, doing some sort of pre-exhaust. Um, just if nothing else, even if on paper it doesn't make the most sense, maybe long-term, it can make a lot of sense just where, again, if you've never felt your chest before pressing, then pressing is useless in your programming at this point in time or relatively useless and then slowly getting less useless, hopefully, if you find things that you can start to feel and, and work out. And um, so, yeah, it's just kind of an individual thing at that point, as far as how I, you know, would implement all that stuff and how I would use all that stuff. And at the same time, then, you know, ideally, I think it's good. It would be good to train those end ranges as well, too. And uh, but again, using myself as an example, I'm just lazy sometimes and I don't do it. So there are times and I've set it up and I've done programming for myself, honestly, for this as much as anyone else. Or, OK, at the end of this session, I'm going to work on end range external rotation. I'm going to work on end range protraction actually put some load there and then structured over the course of my split. Maybe I'm getting a lot of the big stuff covered and actually training it. 
Um, but again, sometimes I'm lazy and I don't do that shit, but as a bare minimum, if I move things before I train them again, I'm at least using, utilizing ranges that I have available. And, um, let me and ask not you about that, Joe. Of, yeah. Um, just while, while you touched on it, because, uh, I, I've done a similar setup, like go through range motion, mobility work. Um, yeah. maybe that leads into some type of stabilization exercise of some sort, then I'm going to my main movement but yep. you brought up point like about training in ranges of of, of movements that are maybe more uh, if you quote unquote functional or just yeah. areas where we don't get into right like mm -hmm. hey we just press in this line this horizontal line but we yeah. never do anything internal externally rotated but yep. you put it at the end of a session with if someone if you had someone that had uh, a lack of stability in that in range because they never go into it yeah putting it at the end of a session do you, do you think the the ability to learn and, and gain stability strength with a lack of, of neural efficiency at the session, just because they're taxed from training, right? You train yeah. neurologically, you're taxed to learn new new movements or strengthen yeah. those areas. It, it might be more challenging. Would you think maybe putting like, hey, we expose this weakness of external rotation stability. Should we be putting that in the beginning of the session instead? Or mm -hmm. it, I, I'm sure your application at the end is, is a different thing on its own. Yeah. Um, yep. But you know, where, where do you, where do you, where's your uh, mindset lay on that? Yeah. And so again, it's, I'll, I'll say this because it's the thing I have to say, but people are going to get tired of hearing it. It's individual dependent. <laughs> now let me yeah. clarify that <laughs> is um, it really does depend on, you know, the severity of where do we really have this function? Again, that's mm -hmm. the funny thing is saying if I expose oh, this person's shoulders are messed up or they can't do this or they can't control that. Well, what's really the cause of that? Um, and so again, I, I honestly think like that's in my opinion, actually one of the lies of corrective work is that it's this strength discrepancy. Oh, like, well, you're, you know, your external rotators are weak. So we need to get in and we need to, we need to train your external rotators. So they have this kind of balance thing. And there's not that the concept's completely wrong. I've learned some very interesting stuff. We're working with a high enough level. Paulquin was huge on that. Paulquin had all these indicator lifts where it's like, if you want to be able to bench press X amount, you should be able to externally rotate X amount of weight or whatever. And so I do think the, the notion that balance has to occur, like, right. It's like, if you took a look at the size of some 12 year olds, you know, uh, an external rotator of the rotator cuff and said, okay, well, we're going to put that in someone that wants to bench 500 pounds. It's not going to happen. Now that being said, someone that can bench press 500 pounds, does that mean that they did all of this stuff to have that muscle hypertrophy? No, it, as you go along, a lot of those stabilizer muscles, they're going to hypertrophy at the same rate as everything else because they have to, because even though we're not training them in the traditional hypertrophy method, they're still getting exposed to progressively greater force and they're basically doing their job if your shoulder joint doesn't disassemble. So I think where people have, again, these dysfunctions occur, most of the time it's a neurological thing. And so again, if it's a neurological thing, I think again, there's a lot of complicated stuff that goes into how do we fix this, fix this yeah. neurological thing. <clears throat> but I think the tool that trainers have and individuals have is to take muscles into their end ranges um, and things happen in those end ranges. So again, if we look at if we look at the physical therapy world, we look at the corrective world, there's been a ton of studies done on, you know, what do isometrics do? What do isometrics do as far as carryovers and range of motion? So this is why I say if you do isometrics in this range, you can show that there's going to be a carryover in strength and range of motion to whatever, 10 degrees, one way or the other of it and stuff. And so again, whatever the hell that means, something neurologically changes, something happens. And I've, I've read MAT has their theories on here's what's happening and other people, I don't think it really matters. Um, it matters for somebody that that's their whole job, right? If they're diagnosing and prescribing shit, but for bodybuilders, if I say taking things to end ranges, 
seems to help fix stuff sometimes. And so if I had somebody that had this shoulder issue, that's actually why I like to do all that end range work for uh, first minus load. Cause again, if I just take someone into complete external rotation, they just perform an isometric there with literally their own body weight, having resistance of opposing tissue, maybe resistance of actually where a joint gets to bone on bone. I think that can have corrective merit. And um, so Again, if it's you realizing, maybe my hey, can I actually retrain this thing? I'll tell this is the tedious shit that no one wants to do. Somebody has scapular issues, shoulder blade issues, and I say, hey, the first place to start is you know do some do some shoulder blade circles, work on the quality of that to where you have great control at every single position that your shoulder blade can get to in its extreme, and then I might start prescribing frequency. Once you can do it really well, do that five or six times a day, and then people honestly ask. It's the same people. It's like, how do I fix posture? And it's like, well, how did you get bad posture? You chose a position that was more comfortable for you to be in, and then you repeated it at high frequency. If you want better posture, choose the position you want to be in and repeat it at high frequency. And um, so it's one of those things where I think it's uh, some of that shit is really tedious to actually fix, and most people just don't want to do it. All that being said, getting more complicated down the road, I, uh, that's why I said at the end of things, I like the notion of maybe this isolated and training it just from your semantic standpoint, that even though you're in a fatigue state, the way that I prescribe doing it is you're only going to ranges that you can control and lots of times is still doing like isometronics, so pressing into something. Um, and I think it's a very good way to produce at least more isolated force than you would during your normal training at the same time, not really exceeding whatever capacity you have at that point in time. You know, so even if you're pushing relatively as hard as you can into some unmoving object, you can't produce more than your body's willing. Whatever you're pressing in is how hard you're getting back. You're not going to exceed what you're capable of doing. So some of that's, again, just a little bit of a matter of, you know, there, there can be a time and place for like, oh, this whole joint's messed up. We need to do this whole deal before yeah. we take a bigger picture look at it. But all the time, I mean, especially with, because I do it the way I do myself, the way I work with Terrence, as, I mean, you know how it is. It's like, especially it's like, the, even if you're only doing one show a year, you only have so much time, right? Is there ever really going to be a time where I'm like, hey, Terrence, let's take off six weeks and let's relearn some patterns, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. The reality is you train your ass off. You're not technically doing anything perfect ever. You're always dealing with, hey, this is starting to get a teeny bit inflamed. Okay, let's adjust the movement. Let's work on some stuff there. Let's see if we can have that kind of correct itself while we go over here. Hey, we did. We came back. That's fine. Oh, shit. Something else is starting to hurt now. So there's always these moving parts. And lots of times you're just again, uh, staying within my scope of practice, I'm like, let's just work on these, you know, specific things and then see how well we can have that, you know, potentially help or correct, you know, while we're still moving towards this, this bigger goal. Where if I had someone that was like, Hey, my goal is for my body to feel as good as it can possibly feel when I'm 110, I certainly wouldn't be prescribing bodybuilding type stuff. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, and that, yeah, absolutely makes sense. Of course it's individual. Um, and I think getting training in the end ranges. It absolutely has merit, especially at the end of a session. Um, when, when you do have some fatigue, it's, it's probably safe to get into those ranges. Um, yeah. now, but like you're saying, the extreme of that, if you have someone that's lacks complete instability mm -hmm. and maybe that would set them up for an injury, but for others, this, this is something that could be fine yeah. on this top, on this topic, Joe, you know, we talk, cause this is kind of getting into like fatigue management, you know, mm -hmm. you're, you have injuries that crop up. We have them. We kind of have to work around them. Uh, connective tissues can get some fatigue in it. Uh, I know yep. fatigue is kind of coined now. Everyone talks about fatigue. Yeah. It's like, well, what, what the hell were you even talking about? But um, you know, how, how are you handling a session of like, Hey, the muscles fully cooked, we're training chest. Yeah. 
we know it's done now. Um, yeah. And what are we doing to manage that from one session to the next? Because, hey, we could fry chest day, but also we need to be able to train back the next day. And then we yeah. also have to be able to train chest in a week. Um, how, how does that look? Just an individual session management. And then I, I would like to get into like how you manage like deloads and more longer term yeah. like, fatigue management strategies. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's the thing, again, people overcomplicate a little bit is it, it's, you know, you have to, again, you have to establish that baseline. I was, I talk about this a lot now. I think more people are talking about, which is good, but your, you know, your base metric of volume is a rep, right? You know, so it's, again, it's, we want to get as much out of that single base metric before we start to build upon that and start to look at what, how many reps and how many sets and how much total volume, et cetera. You know, so I, I really like the notion of, okay, well, we're, we're doing that first. And then let's start with as little as possible and then literally just see from there. And I think that's when everybody, I mean, that's the beauty of bodybuilders. And that's the, that's the balance. Even with, I look at bodybuilders and I look at studies, like you're kind of saying with some studies in the first place, it's like, it's the, technically it's a controlled group, but it's actually less controlled than pretty much any bodybuilder on the planet. That's an actual bodybuilder. And that's when you always got to take those. There's some things that are great to compare from study to study. Um, but some of it's like, you know, you and I both know it's like, well, what the hell, like you said, what were they doing before? What else were they doing while all this shit was going on? And it's like, it's cool when you work with bodybuilders, cause at least you have more of a notion of what they're doing, but even the still, you don't really know for sure. Right. And, um, so at the individual level, it's like, well, let's establish this. Let's literally, no one else wants to say it, but I'll say, I'm going to guess this is where we're going to start. So we've got, you know, we've got good, you know, uh, we have a good solidified rep. We've standardized the rep. You know, we standardize basically how far can I take a set? If I have somebody that is more advanced, I like to see what we can get out of one set first. You know, so I would say it's fairly say, safe to stay. Relatively speaking, I'm more of a low volume advocate. Um, my default baseline just being for what it is, what it is. And again, working for semantics reasons is kind of a top set back offset. For most people, that's just two working sets and exercise. Um, and then literally, it's like, well, let's see how that goes. And so we'll do a session. And I, the way that I look at over a complete session is have we taxed the muscle, you know, where it's capable of producing most force, you know, as a bonus, have we worked it through its near full contractile range? Um, and then again, if we've taken those baseline of sets that I've started with as far as possible, then let's just kind of see what happens. And, um, and so literally from there, it's like the same thing as people always ask, is this amount of sets good or is this not? I don't know. Is this amount of, you know, proximity to failure good or not? I don't know. And the thing is, I always say it's people hate this answer, but because it, it's people like, you know, you're just exposing what it is. It's people that ask that they're obviously not tracking anything. You wouldn't have to ask me like, how the hell would I know? They say, well, is it good that should, should I train one rep short of failure? Should I train two reps short of failure? And I'm like, well, if you're making progress doing it, then yeah. I mean, the, the whole joke, I mean, I'm not going to name names, but I've seen some people, some bodybuilders that have taken their physique as far as possible that I think generally stay three, four, five reps short of failure forever. <laughs> And I'm not actually picking on those people, which I won't name. If it works, it fucking works. Why would you do more than you have to? If two sets works, why would you do three? If you know three reps short of failure works, why would you train to failure unless you just enjoy it? You know, so it's we I implement and then basically we just see, you know, we'll look at micro, you know, can we go from session to session? Depending on again, are we trying to do a lot of big body parts, like you said, like, am I putting, you know, a leg day here and a back day here where I've got a deadlift program and then everything's just fucked or who knows what. So there is some of that just seeing what per, like happens session to session. But for the most part, it's just, well, let's come around to that next session. Let's have conversations about everything that happened outside of those, the sessions. And let's see what we're capable of doing performance-wise moving forward. Um, and so on all honesty, like the way that's <clears throat> the beauty for me, it's, and I'm sure, you know, like that's why one of the reasons I don't do a whole lot of online coaching anymore is it's just, 
it's, it's a lot to manage. And I think gym performance is the most important thing. And unless you have people really good at showing you what they're doing and knowing how they're doing things, all the rest is a little bit, it's a little bit tough. And so that's the beauty of, I just get to see Terrence every single day. I have conversations. John Meadows does all of his nutrition and subs and everything. So I have conversations with him about, well, where are we at? You know, did you do some blood work? How's that looking? Just conversations about shit, like what he's doing outside the gym. It might be like normal, like, Hey, how was your weekend? Shit like that. But then I'm also finding out was sleep good was sleep shit. You know, was your food good? Is everything good? Is your recovery good? Is your stress good? And so all that kind of stuff is like, we'll literally, we do do a lot of auto regulation. We'll have things where it's like, he's good enough at this point where for some reason life stuff, you know, determined that this session is not going to be a PR session. We're going to skip that session or obviously push it back a day or whatever it is. Get your meals in, get a good night's sleep, get readjusted from flying, who knows what. Or if we decide we're going to come in, but based on some conversations, is this going to be a PR session or is this going to be basically we're just going to kind of hopefully keep where we're at and set ourselves up for success for the next session. So it's a lot of things where, again, I, I would say the way that I go about it most of the time is just we kind of auto-regulate like day to day. And then just the way the bodybuilder schedule works out for the most part, talk about plans for the year. And then as far as deloads and things go, you know, lots of times it goes when he's basically coming off of a show, you know, in a period where, again, maybe from a nutrition, a supplement standpoint, he's not going to grow. We'll just make some adjustments off of that. Um, and the big thing that I'll do different is we just, we cut the volume super low. So if we have a deload phase, I always say it's, it doesn't sound as good, but it's really a devolume phase. Um, lots of times I'll have a few key movements that we have in there that we're still keeping relatively speaking as heavy as we can. Uh, generally, I'll even go into lower rep ranges just to try and maintain and hold on to whatever tissue that we've got. And I might incorporate more of that kind of corrective shit just because generally we have more time. So we might spend some more time moving shit before a session. If I'm actually being good, I'm making him do the same shit that we're both supposed to be doing after every single session as well too. And then basically it's a few weeks of that and just slowly taper stuff back up. We'll start at kind of baseline. Hey, here's where we're at. We'll see what happens from there. And if we taper things, we taper things. And, and that's the big thing too. Even with me, I don't adjust volume a whole lot. Even when recovery is going great, I just find I'd rather have I always think I'm trying to remember, I, I don't, I'm not saying this is a negative thing, but I think it's, you know, Mike is retail. All this stuff is a lot about having maximal recoverable volume. I think those are the points you're all, they're always looking for. And again, a lot of his stuff is great. And I don't want anybody to think I'm saying any of that's negative, but I honestly just see how long can we progress at minimal recoverable? Like what's the minimal volume, minimal effective stimulus volume. If that's, can I coin that or whatever? Or I think everybody says that, but that's what I'm looking for. I want volume at a minimal at all times where I'm still progressing from session to session with everything else, everything else intensity related. And as long as Terrence and whoever I'm working with is laying down tissue for the most part, I keep it there. And then honestly, some of it's just being transparent is fun stuff. Like if his recovery is good, I'm like, you want to just do something stupid today? I'll do it measured. We'll never go from doing like two working sets on the hack to like five to just fucking make him puke and do strip sets and stuff. But it would be like, Hey, we did two this last week. Everything's feeling good. You want to do something stupid on this last one? We'll strip some plates. We'll do something horrible. Yeah, fuck yeah, let's have at it. And I think one, it's like <clears throat> being honest. Can I say that if he can recover that vault from that volume and it's appropriate, is that more effective than had we not done that? I honestly don't know, right? It's like I'll do that stuff when I know that his recovery is the best. He's in the best surplus. He's you know getting the best sleep. And it certainly doesn't hinder results. But to say that I've really, really accurately tracked, okay, well, this was this many working sets. This was this many. This time I incorporated an intensifier, blah, blah, blah. And I know that this is more effective. I mean, I honestly think like when some people talk about that, I, I just don't know how they can definitively make claims about, oh, we tapered up the volume and this was better or whatever. Like, well, what did you actually compare it to? Like, again, there's so many fucking moving parts all the time, even with someone that has fewer moving parts than the rest of the population. 
you know, it's still, some of it is, I mean, I'll say it's some of it's just educated guesses. It's this balance of what makes sense on paper. What's fun to do with your training. Some of it, what can you get away with? Maybe this is better. Maybe it's not, I don't know. Um, so that's kind of my approach to most of that stuff. Um, I don't know if somebody wants something more fancy than that, but it's, again, that's the beauty of, again, it's, I, I'm so used to coming from a place where <clears throat> I've always worked with clients in person. I mean, and that's, that's it. I mean, from, again, from literally when I was thinking beforehand, when I was doing my own workouts and I had training partners, I was always the one that led the workout. And then when I started to train people in person, when I was 20, started training people in person, then doing it full time, 22, 23. And that's what I've done my whole time. So it's like, when you work with people in person, I honestly don't think it's as specific as some people want to make it out to be when it's this abstract thing, when we're just talking about, you know, we're doing a post about something and then we're arguing with somebody else. Like that's my biggest thing that like stuff that like pisses me off. If there is something that pisses me off is people that want to like waste time arguing online. Like the only thing someone's telling me that is they've never worked with people in person. I was like, how is this arguing helping anybody? No one's ever learned anything from an internet argument. They just see an internet argument they maybe tack on their side and feel better about themselves or they tack on the other side, feel better about themselves and go away feeling like I got that guy. Ah, I stung. No one ever changes their opinion. Right. You know, if you're in person and you're trying to help people, that stuff is just like, that's why I said the stuff can go out there. That's the joke with anybody that hasn't seen that with the, the baby handle thing. When I was going back and forth with Fuad real nice is I'm um, obviously Fuad's a grown up eater and obviously take it personal. But if I was working with Fuad in person and he said, Hey man, this is my favorite back exercise there would have been no further discussion after that. I would literally have never had a problem with him doing a T-bar row with this handle every single day that he ever went to the gym. Because what the fuck does that, like, again, if he likes it and he gets results from it, great. The whole point is like, well, I'm going to give some people some information to have to make educated decisions for themselves. But I sure as if I was existing outside of the social media world and just training someone in person, I wouldn't fucking touch it with a 10 foot pole. This is your favorite exercise. Great. This is going to be the cornerstone of your programming. Let's carry on with your life. So again, when people want to argue about that shit, I was like, this has nothing to do with nothing. This isn't helping anybody. It's like, you know, I don't know. So anyway, that's a long rant. I don't even remember what the hell the first question was, but something to do with that for sure. <laughs> I think a lot of this too comes down to like your ability to critically think and apply these discussions that we have in which we discuss how these variables influence another variable. Like it's good to know these things on paper, but yeah. then the auto-regulatory fashion of managing an actual <clears throat> individual comes down to the ability of someone to critically think and apply these these thoughts and, and how someone is going to be able to recover, which I think it's interesting things to pull out is like someone as successful as yourself when you're managing someone as a pro, like, like Terrence, it, it's really just that week to week conversation of how is that recovery capacity doing? Okay. Mm -hmm. we can maybe take this program a little bit further than we've been taking it the last few weeks. And, and that is where like setting up communication structures within coach to client is very important. If you mm -hmm. are someone that works online, um, but I think something to tease out real quick, because I know we're running out of time, that we didn't touch on is the, the conversation people sometimes have of what does an optimal session structure look like. If, yeah. if not having issues with someone like mm -hmm. contract a muscle, like yeah. arguments of we should train short and to lengthen. There's the yeah. argument of we should load the lengthen first because it's the greatest opportunity for mechanical tension, yeah. et cetera. Et cetera. What does that optimal session look like if there aren't dysfunctional things? Yeah. I mean, so, you know, an optimal session, in my opinion, um, again, if we're going to the note of efficiency, so the reality is, so again, the one asterisk I'll start with before we go here is if, um, if where there's, I think there are differences where people can have good arguments for let's start short range and then go this range or whatever. The end of the day, if a coach is actually producing results, a whole bunch of it comes down to what does he coach well and what do his athletes receive well? 
And that's the thing is I could have somebody that has a completely different thing. And that's why I said that genuinely nicely talking about Mike Israel's stuff is like the way that he does. It's great for people to have a fucking structured plan to follow. Obviously it's very helpful to thousands of people. It's fucking great. And that's the weird thing is like, again, people want to argue about shit. I could have a coach that does something completely different than me. And I could be like, Hey, that makes sense. Keep, keep doing a good job. <laughs> and uh, so that's the one last, because the, the reason that I like to structure things the way that I do is I do think it's still the most evidence from nerd stuff that we've got now from what bodybuilders and everybody's been doing for decades is to prioritize where muscles can have the most uh, mechanical tension. I mean, again, depending on who, even some really good nerd stuff and you read Chris Beardsley stuff, which I think is freaking great. You know, you have people that basically are saying like, is, are there really other types of stimulus that are outside of mechanical tension? Because again, as far as I know, when they ever actually try and take away mechanical tension and look at metabolic things or whatever it is, you can't show an effect just from these things isolated. Cause again, in the real world application, they all exist together to some degree, as much as some people like to say, well, this is more tension based and this is more, you know, metabolic stuff based or whatever. It's like, well, you know, at the end of the day, it's like, again, I think all of those things coexist to a certain degree. And I personally think there's the most evidence still for prioritizing mechanical tension and prioritizing basically what's going to, and there's a little difference here. Obviously I always talk about bone to bone pool, Yes, there's a little bit difference for it really comes down to that individual sarcomere. Where can it produce the most force? Because again, it's even an internal thing. But for the most part, if you just took a muscle out of the body and you said bone to bone pool, where can I have the most force? You want to prioritize that, what your muscles are capable of doing. And then you want to pick things that do that and cover as much range of motion as possible, I think. And so that's the notion, again, of when I say efficiency is important, if I can accomplish maximal force production with one exercise as opposed to two, I will always choose that. And so if I'm picking something for a given body part, I will prioritize first and foremost, something that as a bare minimum overloads the mid range. Very often it's possible. And just kind of as a matter of semantics also overloads the lengthened range. And then if it covers the shortened range, which almost never happens with one exercise, then, then great. So I will prioritize those as my meat and potato movements, the things that cover the most range of motion, matching what your body is capable of doing. Um, and then if a muscle is, you know, something where I think it has a broad enough origin to warrant biasing different fiber parts, then I might consider that within training as well too. Um, but so for the most part, like looking at, um, you know, something like quads, I mean, again, a complete quad workout, if you have something as efficient as a good pendulum squat, as a good uh, hack squat, I mean, you can cover, in my opinion, 90% of the quads contractile range, you know, just on that exercise, <clears throat> any squat pattern is still going to probably bias the length and range a little bit. Um, so again, in my opinion, a complete quad workout could basically be a squat pattern and a leg press. Between there, you've basically completely taxed the length and range. <clears throat> if you didn't quite get everything in the mid range, the leg press is going to do it. And as an added bonus, maybe every once in a while do a leg extension, although I don't think it's important to train the muscle fully shortened every single session. Um, so that's, that's a complete session for me. If I look at a body part, if I've covered those 90% of its contractile range, um, that's it. That's the end of it. So again, for me, a quad session rarely has more than two exercises in it. You know, if we're looking at pecs, same type of thing, 90% of the time I can get it done with maybe three exercises just because one, I want something where it's, you know, pretty much fully lengthened through the mid range. And then the only reason that I might, again, I might have two exercises to accomplish that between the press and the fly. And then I might add one more that maybe really biases, you know, maybe some upper pec fibers or things like that. But if you really go through body part by body part, 90% of body parts, I think we're actually looking at individual muscles 
can be trained with two exercises. And that's generally what I try and accomplish within programming. And then obviously it lends itself if you're doing something like a push, pull, whatever, you know, so for a chest day for me typically might have, um, you know, three exercises for chest, two exercises for delt, one exercise for triceps, realizing again within my programming, if I'm covering everything else somewhere else. Um, but that's, that's a pretty typical type thing like that. I said, again, something like chest, or even lats maybe being a little bit more complicated, maybe requiring three exercises, but almost everything else. If I can do it in two exercises, I do it in two exercises. Um, and then the only thing that I'll program from there sometimes is a little bit of a bonus is that's meat and potato stuff. When I say that, I mean, it's things that I basically log book. I try and typical progressive overload over time. Um, and then I like to finish sessions with anywhere from five to 10 to 15 minutes of what I consider kind of purely metabolic or pump work just for the reason that whatever you're doing at the end of the session, um, I think obviously you're fatigued. So load is not going to be the main stimulus, no matter what you do, whether you want to do it with different exercises or you want to do it in the form of the same exercise and a drop set or an extended set. Um, and again, what's, what's really happening there? Is it something where we're just having more force production, maybe through just a smaller uh, percentage of overall sarcomeres actually contracting individual fibers actually contracting? Or are we getting some benefit from just this whole lot of metabolic byproduct, a lot of contractions in a short period of time? Whatever the case is, I can program it pretty easily. And if people can recover from it, I think it makes sense. So that's, that's a typical session for me is train an individual body part with as few exercises as possible, covering as much range of motion as I can, matching load the best that I can, and then finish something that's just as, as many contractions as I can get, hitting as many failure points as I can get in a very short period of time. And, uh, and again, if people are in a place where they can recover, I think that structure works really well. Yeah, I, I, uh, I like that general setup. And I hope people pull away like the thought process throughout all of this is like stripping it down just to like, what are the logical thoughts of where, where do the muscles lie? Are we training mm -hmm. those muscles in the movements we're selecting? How can we efficiently do that? And mm -hmm. does it make sense to just repeat movements arbitrarily if it already is in that range? So if you're flat yeah. Should you go to then a, a flat dumbbell bench? It's like, well, this is very similar doing the same thing. Yeah. Um, why don't we just maybe do another set on the flat bench or something? And that yeah. out for the day. Uh, this would bring in my, my question, Joe, is do you feel like we do need to rotate exercises session to session? Like having a session, a chest A, a chest B to vary the exercises, maybe from a repetitive movement standpoint, or, yeah. Hey, we found a movement. This is bang on like dumbbell bench press. I hit my pegs perfect every time I go to any yeah. work. Well, then it yeah. doesn't make sense just to keep dumbbell bench pressing and maybe we rotate exercises. So what, what is your thought on like um, set rotation or should that be more like every six weeks we stall out, then we rotate a movement. Yeah. I tend to say if, if I have something I tend to default to, but to be honest, I'm pretty much 50, 50 on this. And I think it literally just comes down to an individual and it comes down to a coach. So I know that I think like on paper, I think it makes more sense to have, you know, your A and your B and just rotate. Um, and again, if you're not working with somebody in person, particularly, I think it's just kind of like a little bit of a kind of cover your ass practice where again, there is this notion of doing this exact same pattern you might have some things happening to smaller stuff that maybe you don't want to have happening. And just by getting out of that pattern a little bit, you can help alleviate some of those issues. Um, so, you know, if, if it was something again for a coach out there that's programming, and if you're not with a person in person, um, I think it makes a lot of sense to have like kind of the AB rotation. Uh, and, but the flip side of that is for me, generally, if I'm training someone in person, 
I try and find the things that work the best and I tend to just run those into the ground and then rotate when either it's a, it's a stall, um, which lots of times doesn't really happen unless something else is going on outside the gym, relatively speaking, or we start to present with some itis, something somewhere. Um, but I think it's a good point to take home as well too is um, yeah, it, people do that either within one session or long-term. If you have an exercise, that's the fucking perfect by your own, obviously one on paper, it's going to have to make some degree of sense. And then an application, it's your favorite exercise. You perform well on it. You feel it well. It's by far that gets a 10 out of 10 and all the next exercises are a six out of 10. Like some people will still do that. They'll do their bench press, whatever. And they feel obligated to get, then go do dumbbell press or a flat machine press. And it's like, even them knowing I don't feel this as well. And I'm like, well, what the hell is the point of doing it? You know? So I yeah. think some people in the face of, you know, obvious evidence, will still feel this notion of like they have to do something for, you know, no real actual reason other than maybe someone else did it. Um, you know, so I think that's important within a session as well too. That kind of like you said, you piggybacked in nice with that is if you have something that works great, don't feel the need. Like you have, like, again, there's still this notion where again, like you got to hit all the angles, which again, there's, it's just some like fucking soundbite that actually takes away. Like, well, what do you have? Like I kind of, like I said, you've got, you've got lengths of a muscle. You can definitely make the argument for training all the different lengths. You've got, again, different origin, you know, muscles with broad origin, but that's it. There's no other fucking angles outside of that where it's like, I got a, this angle, this angle, this angle. And like, and again, people look at an exercise and think different exercise has different effect and don't realize again, sometimes it's redundancy where the effect is negative and just feel like they have to do it for the sake of doing it. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's one of those things, honestly, I really think the sticking with the same or the rotation comes down to the coach comes down to the client. And I've seen great results with both. Um, but like I said, if I have to say, I have a little bit of a default for myself and people I work with in person is I, I rather find the things that work and fit the best and then run them into the ground. And I'll even have some things where for years, I would say we look over the course of a year, you know, our big movement on some stuff, we might spend 90% of the year doing one movement. And then just basically sometimes with a deload, I will do it, just rotate it out. Or if we hit a little bit of a plateau, rotate it out for a few weeks, but then put it back in as soon as we're ready. So, and that's, again, that's just a little bit of a coaching preference. I think it's not necessarily saying, you know, this is the way type deal, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I, I completely agree. And like, there, you know, there's evidence now that we show like there is like regional hypertrophy within muscles. Mm -hmm. And so it's some indication, like maybe there should be some rotation patterns there. You don't have to do it every single time though. Like I think the biggest takeaway from all this is, and you probably agree is like her hypertrophy is a very forgiving adaptation. Like there's lots of things that we can do to accomplish this goal. And it yeah. doesn't, is it like, this is the Joe Bennett way. Yeah. And that's the only way. And actually the Joe Bennett way is a flexible way. And yeah. it just finds the route to hypertrophy through whatever that individual needs, um, yep. whether that is an AB rotation or, Hey, we have an A rotation, but only one movement is the one that we rotate. There's, yeah. there's lots of ways to get there. And I think to get there, you do need to have this in intuitive process that's occurring, some auto regulating, some general critical thinking that's going on. Mm -hmm. um, we, we do have some templates and some check boxes that we need to adhere to as well. Yeah. Um, but we shouldn't go rabbit hole on one variable and let that lead us astray and, and mm -hmm. start chasing things that don't lead us to a more optimal outcome, which that optimal outcome being uh, hypertrophy. But, but sure. uh, with, with the broad scope of lots of things work for hypertrophy. So this is yep. exactly why I wanted to have you on here, Joe, is because you have a very a logical thought process of tearing down some very nuanced and, uh, and items that can lead people astray and mm -hmm. just get like, 
down brass tacks. Like, hey, what are you thinking when you walk in the gym? How does this apply? Mm. What do you feel and, and take away from it? I think that's yeah. why you've, you've been so effective over the years. And uh, people what might take away of like, well, that's basic. If you really strip it down, it's basics. Like yeah. Yeah, most people aren't doing the basics. <laughs> yeah. You, know, you forgot the basics along the way and got too detailed, but yeah. Um, yeah. And I think that's a, a good thing that you touch on as well too. There's a balance from a coaching standpoint of the way that I've liked to word it now is because there is, it's like, I, I like teaching principles and I like all that kind of stuff because I think it leads to people making the best decisions for themselves. That being said, I also know what it's like to be relatively new or intermediate into something or just not taking it remotely near the level where we do where some people are just like, shut up with all that shit and just tell me the exercise to do. And that is the balance where I said there is a place where it's like, you know, I could have two different athletes. Oh my gosh, this is terrifying. Doing the exact same leg workout. It's like, well, why the fuck wouldn't I, if they both work great. And I think on paper, this is a great place to start. I think that's a big lie too. Is everyone's like, well, if you were really personalizing everything, you would never have anybody doing the same anything. I'm like, get the fuck out of here. I'm not going to give somebody to some weird ass exercise just so it's, it's personalized. It's not cookie cutter. Um, so there's a balance there. Like you said, yes, there's, I think there's a huge, and I guess that's a huge take home where it's just like, if you could have the notion that yes, a lot of this stuff is basic until, until you just get stuck with that notion of basic. And that's where advanced athletes have to have some principle based thought process, because again, you'll get somebody that says, well, yeah, a bench press could be a great exercise for chest, but there's someone out there that every time they bench press, it hurts their shoulder and they, but they keep doing it. And they're like, I have to bench press. I have to do it. And the reality is if you just had some sort of principle base, realizing how long your fucking form is compared to the next guy, you could get the same effect stopping half an inch off your shoulder. And it's, it could be, I've literally seen shit as simple as that, where people is like, Oh my God, it doesn't hurt my chest anymore. And it's like, well, that's the same deal where it's like, Oh, well, someone could look at all this is very basic. Yes. It's very basic until someone gets stuck in the specifics or the semantics of that basic. And again, if you don't have any principles to guide your stuff, then you don't know when to make those small little adjustments. And that's that funny thing. There's, I don't know, I always butcher this analogy because I think it's been a billion different ways, but the whole analogy of somebody has this, you know, $10 million yacht and nobody can fix it. And they hire this guy to come out and fix it. And he comes out and he looks at it for, you know, a little while looking all over the boat and he takes a wrench and he fucking wrenches something and says, well, see you later, 15 minutes later. And then he sends the guy a bill, you know, for $20,000. And the guy's like, $20,000. He's like, what the hell is that for? And he's like, well, $10 for the wrench and the other 19,000, whatever, because I knew what to do. And that's the funny thing. I think where it sums up coaches is like, I'll work with some people sometimes where the joke is, I think maybe over the course of a session, I'll give them like one or two cues and that's it. And then someone be like, that's it. And I was like, what do you want me to do? Like, again, the whole joke, fucking protractor, everything. Sometimes it really can be this small little thing that somebody needs, but that should be a coach's job, right? I'm not going to fucking change all this shit. Like you said, like Joe Bennett, now you're doing the Joe Bennett system. Like, no, I want to look at what you have see what you need to keep, maybe adjust some little shit. And sometimes it could be as boring as that. It's literally maybe like one little thing, but that one little thing could make a huge fucking difference for somebody, even if it is kind of simple on paper. So yeah, that's a, that's the thing. Like you said, like a lot of it here is like, no, this is really that complicated. It's like, well, some, yeah, I don't, I don't really want to overcomplicate stuff just to be fucking this mystical gatekeeper of hypertrophy, but there is, there is some nuance in there. And that's why, again, I always have that balance of, yes, I always want to tell people, I can do shit on YouTube where it's like, what's the best quad exercise I get the point of those videos because yeah. some people just want to like, I'm going to go in, just tell me what the fucking do. Okay. Here's some things to, to choose from some actual written on paper exercises, but then I'll always sprinkle, sprinkle in some principles of like, well, maybe you'll do this range of motion or maybe this one hurts. And this is why you would switch to that one, that type of deal. So it's a, I think it's a little bit of a tough balance as an educator. And again, managing expectation. If you want to take your physique as far as possible, 
you have to have some of both. You, you can't just, you know, do the basics. You just can't do this on paper stuff. You have to take some ownership of, like you said, just some, I think that's always say Dorian Yates is one of my favorite bodybuilders ever for all the things that he did. Just because again, it's like, he's obviously not, he's not known for the guy that got out the fucking protractor. I think it's so funny that people reference him as like, ah, oh, people are hardcore. Don't overcomplicate shit. I was like, have you ever listened to anything he said yeah, or meticulous. read anything he's written? Yeah, he's meticulous. And he was the first, he's one of the first bodybuilders really talking about, you know, I studied, I, I thought about a muscle's origin and insertion and really just about bringing those points together and what could accomplish that. And I've written stuff before I'll write again. Cause just, I like to do it, but it's like, if you, you know, look at his famous programming, he followed the same programming basically for 10 years over his professional career that obviously worked pretty damn well. All of it was pretty innovative at the time. Like if you looked at what guys were doing and then what he was doing, like it was the guy, he's the guy's like, he didn't do a fucking barbell squat. You know, he didn't do a flat bench press. Like there's all these movements he didn't do because he's like, well, that shit didn't work for me. He's like, I figured out what worked for me. And then I'll joke is people will do the same mistake that people were making before him. They'll look at exactly what Dorian did and say, we well, have to do exactly this. And I was like, that's not the fucking lesson of Dorian. Yeah, Dorian it. said like, <laughs> he, he, I mean, he had some great, there absolutely is some stuff that he figured out that, well, his whole programming could be a great place to start for somebody. But at the same time, if you're doing something, it's like, well, modify. I remember having a conversation with Dusty um, and him, him talking about how much like, uh, you know, dead stop skull crushers work amazing for him. And he's like, I was, he's like, I was talking to somebody and they're like, well, every time I do them, man, they just rip up my elbows. And he's like, well, stop doing them. He's like, I wouldn't do them if they fucking ripped up my elbows. And so you look at somebody like that. People do that all the time. They look at these one-offs. They're like, well, he's got massive triceps. He does these dead stops. And it's like, well, yeah, he didn't say that you had to do them or have to do them the exact same way. And so I think that's where, again, people lose a little bit of that just critical thinking and, again, some sort of principles to guide them. And, um, but anyway, yeah, that's half the reason I love Dorian's stuff as well, too, is he was obviously – you know, did a lot of the things that existed for a long time. Obviously, hit style training kind of existed. He adopted and made it his own. There was this progressive overload component, but then he made movements his own. He didn't feel like he had to do specific things, you know? Yeah, yeah. Dorian's always been a fan of mine. I, I ran his routine exact because back in the day, uh, I, yeah. just didn't, I didn't know because I was like, oh, that's Dorian's routine. Yeah. And uh, then, then I realized like, oh, well, there's then, – then you realize you become the thinking man's bodybuilder, right? And you mm -hmm. start to question – why am I doing this? Can I explain yeah. why I'm doing each thing? And, and mm -hmm. once going through that process, then you eventually could become a, a decent coach because you're yeah. explaining the whys behind the things that you do. If you mm -hmm. can't, can you explain why am I doing this bench press? Yeah. At a simple level, it's not hard because I mm -hmm. work my chest. Does it work your chest? Yes. Yeah. Cool. You know why? Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, I think just those, those simple questions are, are great takeaways and to put a little bit of, of critical thinking behind it, but that's what you're great, Joe. And so glad to Thanks, have, have you on. Um, yeah. If people wanted to reach out, find you places, uh, where, where can we find more hypertrophy to coach? Uh, yeah, I mean, honestly, my two biggest platforms now, Instagram is always number one. So just hypertrophy coaches to handle on Instagram and I post there pretty much daily. So that's a good place. If you're not familiar with my stuff, dip the toes in, see if you're interested. If that's not your cup of tea, then don't go past that. Uh, but I've been pretty good at, I've been, my goal, one of my goals this year is to have my YouTube be very consistent. So my YouTube's got a lot of content on there as well, too, for people that want to dig in further. And then for anybody that really wants to nerd, um, I have an app, Hypertrophy Coach app um, and all that stuff, you know, link and bio stuff. You can go and research that, look that in a little bit further. For people that want to, you know, um, look at actual programs, what do my programs look like? Look at my actual thought process and principle stuff. It's all on there. But like I said, it's good to, good to dip the toes in first somewhere else and just kind of see if it's your thing. But, um, but yeah, man, I appreciate being on, man. I'm, I'm grateful for you having me on here. Happy to, happy to hop on.
Yeah, definitely. And, and just to, to pro people more, um, I, I am a member on, you know, hypertrophy.coach.com. And if you know, the people that listen to this come for education, this university, you know, podcast. So uh, Joe has great information on dipping into training, understanding the basics, why you do those basics, why there is nuance, what you should take away from the nuance and actually apply it to yourself. So check it out if you want to go all in on learning more. About Thank you.